Welcome to another inspirational message from Northwest Church. We pray this message encourages and inspires you. If you would like any more information on what your next step may be, please visit our website at northwestchurch.com.au. God loves people and he's glad you're in church this morning. I think whatever it takes to get someone in church on a Sunday is a good thing. I heard this story about this little Catholic nun. She used to work for a Catholic healthcare agency and she'd get up in the morning and she'd put on her habit and then she'd drive around and care for sick people in their homes. One day she was out doing her rounds and her station wagon ran out of petrol, about half a block from a petrol station. She got out and she walked down to the petrol station and she said, can I borrow a can for some petrol? And the man said, I'm sorry, but the, the can we use for that, someone's got it. Uh, hang around for a couple of hours, he'll bring it back. But she didn't want to wait that long, so she went back to her station wagon, looked around for the biggest receptacle she could find, and it turned out to be a bedpan. So back to the petrol station, she went with a bedpan and filled the bedpan with petrol. Good thinking. Here's a nun walking down the pavement with a bedpan, workmen in a truck eating their lunch, watching a nun walk down the road with a bedpan. She comes to the back of a car and pours the contents into the tank. Um, One workman turns to the other, he says, I am not a religious man, but if that car starts, I'm going to church on Sunday. If that's what brought you here this morning, God, God bless you, we're glad you made it, because whatever it takes, God's got great stuff for you, and I want to share with you this morning one of the greatest principles you could ever learn for an effective life, comes straight out of the Bible. And I'll start by kind of, well, this is where my story starts. It starts with a man called Noah. How many have ever heard of Noah? Noah and the Ark. Have you heard about that? Yeah, you've heard about Noah. Noah's an interesting man. Because by the time Noah gets to to the end of his life, everybody else is dead. Um, Everybody except his wife, his three sons, and their wives. Just eight people survived the flood of Noah's time. Now, I got asked the question, what was so special about Noah that he survives and no one else does? Good question. Read your Bible. Answers to difficult questions are found in your Bible. And this is the reason that Noah survived the flood and no one else did. Genesis chapter 6. Now, this is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a good man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. What a man. How wonderful it would have been to have him for your dad. I mean, if anybody else was your dad, you were toast. But if Noah was your dad, you got to wake up after the flood and realize that my dad was such a decent man. He was a a good man, righteous among the people when others weren't. And he walked faithfully with God. Oh, dad, we love you. Thank you, dad. Really appreciate you, dad. What a blessing to be raised in a house with a dad who was that good. Question. If these three boys, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, were so blessed by having such a good dad, how come a couple of chapters down the Bible, one of these boys ends up being cursed? Good question. Difficult questions addressed right in the Bible. Read your Bible Come up three chapters and this is what we read. Now Noah was a man of the soil and he proceeded to plant a vineyard. And when he drank some of his wine, he became drunk and lay naked inside his tent. 
And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside, Hoo-hoo, Dad's lying in the nutty, boys. <laughs> but Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders and they walked in backwards and they covered their father's naked body. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father naked. And when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Curse it be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. So why did this young man end up cursed? The answer, because his father was a bad man. See, it's a bad man who gets so drunk he doesn't know if his clothes are on or off. And that's a paradox. It's a paradox that you're living in a home with a dad who's so good, the only reason you are alive is because of his walk with God. And the reason you're cursed is because he put a stumbling block in front of you because of his personal weakness. Do you realize um, it's not Noah who was dead or cursed? It was his son. Because his son didn't handle the imperfections in his father appropriately, it was the boy that paid the price. And this becomes a principle you've got to get a grip on. Because unless you've been raised by perfect parents, there's just a chance that this could happen to you. The reality is that this young man did not handle the imperfections of his father, who was both a good man and a bad man, but it was the boy who paid the price. Now, if it was the only time in the Bible that that occurred, you'd say, well, that's interesting. But you see, it's not a principle. The uh, Bible says, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, let a thing be established. So I wonder if that occurs in the Bible more than once. Huh? Come to another book in the Bible, 2 Samuel. The uh, hero of 2 Samuel is the great King David. In chapter 1 of 2 Samuel, David hears that King Saul has been killed on the battlefield. The guy's been trying to murder him for years. So what's he going to do when he hears that King Saul is dead? He's going to jump on his grave. Woohoo! Woohoo! The wicked king is dead. No, he doesn't do that because he's a good man. David is such a good man, he writes a lament. How are the mighty fallen? And he honors the death of the king. In chapter 2, the tribe of Judah come to David and say, you're such a good man, Davy. You should be king over our tribe. And David is anointed king over Judah. In chapter 3, David starts his family. Now, it's a little different than the average family because he's got six wives. But what a man he is because each one of these wives starts popping out a firstborn son. Six wives, six firstborn sons. The first wife produces first son, Amnon. Wife number three produces the third son, Absalom. And these six boys are growing up in the home of a national hero. In chapter four, David discovers who killed Saul's son, Ishbosheth, and he punishes them for it. In chapter five, uh, David is crowned king over Israel. The whole of the nation come to David and say, you're such a great man. You shouldn't just be king over one tribe. You should be king over the whole country. David is crowned king over Israel and he captures Jerusalem for the first time. In chapter six, he brings in the Ark of the Covenant and he sets up Jerusalem as the capital city and the center of worship in Israel for the first time. In chapter seven, God comes to David and said, David, you're such a good man. I'm going to make a promise to you 
There is going to be a king reigning over Israel. He's going to come right out of your line and your lineage, out of your family. David, you're such a good man. That's fulfilled in the name of Jesus Christ, whom we know as the son of David. Uh, In chapter 8, well, David has one victory after another. In chapter 9, he discovers that uh, the crippled offspring of his friend Jonathan, Mephibosheth, is still alive. And instead of killing him, get rid of any pretender to the throne, he brings him into his house, sits him at his table and treats him like a son. And in chapter 10, David defeats the Ammonites. Is there nothing this good man cannot do? Chapter 11 is a bad day in the office. Spots the neighbor's wife having a bath, invites her over for a game of chess. Turns into a very vigorous game of chess. He gets the girl pregnant. What do you do when you get the neighbor's wife pregnant? You bring the husband home from the war. He'll sleep with his wife. No one will ever know whose kid this is. But here is a man so loyal to his king and his own men in the field, he's not willing to have one night with his wife while men under his command are risking their lives on a battlefield. He sleeps on David's doorstep. What do you do with a man as loyal as that? You murder the guy. And murder and adultery is a bad day in the office for the average man. In chapter 12, Nathan, the prophet of Israel, puts his bony finger in David's face and says to him, Sir, you are a bad man. What a paradox. That you could be known as the man after God's own heart and wrote half the Psalms, and you're known also as an adulterer and a murderer. And in that household, six boys are growing up. It's amazing how people are marked by their family of origin. Because in chapter 13, Amnon, his oldest son, gets the hots for his half-sister Tamar, drags the girl into his bed and rapes her. What's daddy going to do about that? Well, it's very difficult for daddy to discipline a son for rape when he's just been exposed and as an adulterer and a murderer himself. Daddy does nothing. But the girl has a big brother. His name is Absalom. Absalom waits for two years for daddy to sort out the family crisis and when he doesn't, he takes things into his own hands, murders his brother and skips town. One dead son. He waits for a phone call from his dad to sort this stuff out and it never comes. Eventually he starts agitating amongst his father's friends to be allowed to come back to Jerusalem and his dad gives permission for that. But he still doesn't make that phone call and seven years down the track, Dad has let this thing fester in this boy's heart. And when you get to chapter 15, that young man is standing in the, in, the, in the gates of the city saying to anyone who's willing to listen, would that I was king in Israel. In chapter 16, civil war breaks out. And that young man goes for his father's throat. Chapter 18, that same young man is hanging by his hair from a tree with three javelins sticking out of his chest and his father is in an upstairs room sobbing his heart out. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Would that I could have died for you, oh, Absalom, my son, my son. What is that? That's a paradox. But did you notice it's not David who's dead? It's two of his sons because his sons were moved or touched by his own imperfections, but they didn't handle it appropriately. It was the boys that paid the price. 
And this issue becomes one of the profound principles that is at work in human relationships. You have to learn to be able to relate well to imperfect parents. You see, there's a number of things involved. The first thing is that we are profoundly um, grafted, or we are profoundly trained by a family of origin. We become what we live with. And as a result, we need to figure that out. What have I lived with? What have I imbibed? Have you ever watched the way a baby learns a language? It's not easy to learn a language. I tried at, at uh, high school to learn German. Couldn't buy a bus ticket in Germany after two years. <laughs> Having an expert and a textbook and all devoted lessons, I, I couldn't get across the street in Germany. But I speak English rather well. <clears throat> how did that happen, Al? There must be a big government department somewhere that teaches all these babies how to speak English. It's not easy language to learn. But that's not how it happens, is it? Babies are born, you put them in a bassinet and stick them in a family. And then a miracle takes place. They begin to imbibe the family of origin. And within months, you begin to see the miracle. You hear the miracle. Mama, Dada, no. <laughs> Who taught that kid to say no? Well, he didn't need lessons, mate. He's been hanging around with you. And we learn our family of origin so precisely, you can listen to a two-year-old child say one sentence, and in one sentence you'll know if that kid was born in South Africa, or South America, or England, or Australia, or Scotland. You'll hear it in one sentence, that musical lilt, because we don't just pick up the big building blocks of grammar and vocabulary, we pick up such so precisely our family of origin, we've got that lilt we call accent woven into our being because the family in which we grow up becomes, it becomes part of our DNA. And for that reason, we need to pay attention to our family of origin. There's another reason why we need to pay attention to our family of origin, and that is this. You're going to need the skills of living with imperfect people everywhere you go. Because here's the funny thing. Not all of the imperfect people lived at your house. They live at other people's houses too. And one day you'll probably marry one of them. Get a load of that. An imperfect person. Ha! Huh, who would have thought? I married an imperfect person. I married someone who might do me good one day and trouble me the next. Well, then go to church. Ha, you'll find some of them there too. And go to church. You might find it in a pastor occasionally. My church had to put up with me and my weirdness. I had to put up with theirs. Then they put you in a home group and you discover the dude does not know intuitively every unspoken need you have. He didn't phone me right when I needed it the most. Well, did you tell him? No. Why didn't he know? There's something wrong with him or her. Or maybe you go to work. Ha! And maybe your boss doesn't lay awake at night trying to imagine how to construct the workplace in a way that presents you with no problems. Maybe he's doing you good one day and Big problem do the next. Maybe you hire people who are imperfect. See, God knew that if you didn't learn a skill by relating well to imperfect parents, you would never learn that skill anywhere else. And if you didn't learn in your own household, 
everywhere you went in life and you bumped into an imperfect person, there was a danger that that relationship would rupture. You'd be banging your head against walls, leaving churches, walking out of marriages, breaking up relationships at church, at home, in the community, everywhere. Because blow me down, if there aren't imperfect people everywhere you go, it's not just your mum and your dad. And as a result, God knew that you'd need help. And as a result, he's got some real wisdom for you this morning. Wisdom as to how to relate well to an imperfect person. How many people would like to hear that? Any people like to hear how to relate well to an imperfect person? That was not a resounding response. I've I've got other messages. I can do a different one. Got a good one on creation evolution. Uh, if, you, if, you don't, if I don't get a better vote, I'm doing creation evolution. How many people would like to hear what God has to say about relating well to an imperfect person? Okay. All right. So we've nearly got, nearly got 50% that time, Pastor. Almost 50%. If you don't put your hand up, I'm coming to your house this afternoon. Because I don't want to tell you something you don't want to know. But if you don't hear it here, I'm coming to your house to tell you this afternoon. Who wants to hear what God has to say about relating well? Put your hand up. Oh, we've got, we've got a majority. We're okay. Let's press on. God, my mum and my dad aren't perfect. How do I cope with that? Because I don't want to end up cursed like Ham or dead like Amnon and Absalom. How do I do it? Lord, what do you want from me? Well, here it comes. Brilliant thing. Read your Bible. In here, stuff will change your life. It'll guide you through the difficult moments of life. And here it comes straight out of the mouth of God, insight from heaven, wisdom for how to handle the imperfections. You might want to take out a little card, you could write this down. If ever you find an imperfect person, you could pull it out, read it, you'd do a lot better if you put it back in your pocket, save it for the moment that it actually happens. Funny thing is when I say this verse, (laughs) you might know it already. And that'd be disappointing, wouldn't it? Didn't help you yesterday, how's it going to help you tomorrow? But here it comes regardless, here it comes here. God's wisdom... For children, as they relate to imperfect parents, it's coming to Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Here it comes. You shall honour your father and your, and your mother. I do not hear a ripple of approval rolling across this congregation. Where's all the gasps of wonder and adoration? Oh, Jesus, how wonderful. Honour your father and your mother. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fair dinkum. Typical Christian balderdash. Come to church and they tell you rhubarb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honour your father and your mother. Honour your father. Yeah, yeah. You know why God's always sticking up for old folks? It's because he's the ancient of days himself, that's why. (coughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honour your father and your mother. Honour, yeah. Don't rock the boat. Maintain the status quo. Treat the old folks with respect. Yeah. Fair dinkum. If I told my mum and dad all the mistakes they made, they'd be slashing their wrists. If I told my mum and dad all the way they'd messed up my life, they couldn't sleep at night. You know, poor old Ham, what's he supposed to do? He comes home, he finds his dad lying there in the nutty. What's he supposed to do? Well, he should have done a Sergeant Schultz. I say nothing. I say nothing. Yeah, that's God. I want you to pretend your mum and dad are perfect. Oh, no, I see nothing. I see nothing. Mum, my mum and dad, there's a perfect. I honor my mum and my dad. Christianity. What a joke. 
But wait on. Uh, hang on. I, I, I don't think that's what the Bible... I think the Bible says you shall honour your father and your mother so they can feel good about their parenting skills. It doesn't say you shall honour your father and your mother so that they can sleep well at night. Bible says you shall honour your father and your mother that it may be well with you. God's concerned for you. And he knows if you never learn to do this, you're going to have a damaged life. And it's going to spill into every area of your life. If you never learn the skill of honouring an imperfect person, this will damage your life. You say, well, I don't know how to do it. If you knew my mum and dad, you'd shoot one of them. Well, it comes down to understanding this word honour. You shall honour your father and your mother. This Hebrew word honour is a simple word, kabed. Kabed. It means to let something be as heavy as it really is. To let something be as significant as it really is. But it is not just used positively. God is not asking you to pretend your mum and dad were perfect. He's not asking you to do a Sergeant Schultz. Close your eyes and pretend you never saw the defects. In fact, he's asking you to do the opposite. This is a word that is used both positively and negatively. God wants you to learn the skill of seeing all the good your parents have brought into your life and letting the goodness be as good as it really is, as heavy as it really is. He also wants you to see the defects, the things that have not been helpful, because just like a little child, you were raised in a family of origin. If you don't see it, you will repeat it. It's part of your DNA. And God wants you to see it. He wants you to car bed. He wants you to see the defects that were there in your family of origin, and He wants you to let them be as bad as they really were. But there's different skills on each side of that equation. See, on the positive side, God wants you to notice every good thing that came to you through your parents. Because here's what happens with us. This is the way a broken heart works. When people upset us, when they disappoint us, we tend to just cross off all the good stuff. That's why people leave churches. They are my church. Didn't do things the way it was. Was there nothing good going on there? Oh, yeah, but it doesn't count anymore. Why? Because I'm upset. (laughs) The moment I'm upset, I cross off all the good stuff. And you'll do it in your marriage. You'll do it at work. You'll do it in your community. You have no right to do that. You must not do it. Because God's not crossing off the good stuff just because you're upset. He's saying, how dare you? How dare you take all the good that was ministered to you through that person and cross it off the list because it's something you don't like? You must learn to honour. You've got to let it be as good as it really is. So what if my dad went to work for 40 years and put a roof over our house? He was nasty to me one day. I understand that. And that nastiness was not helpful and it may have damaged your life. But don't you dare cross off the goodness because here's a skill you have to learn. You have to be willing to see all the good that is there and add to that the skill of gratitude the skill of worship. One reason Christians can come to church and never worship is because they're hurt over something. God let me down. 
He didn't do what I prayed, and so I can't worship. I've crossed off Jesus, the cross, the Holy Spirit, the Bible, the goodness of God, the fact He's forgiven my sins. I have the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, but I don't like God very much because I prayed for a truck, and I ended up getting a car instead. Cross off all the goodness. You don't get to do that. But if you've been doing it, it's damaging your life. And now God called you to back up and learn a new skill all over again. The skill of gratitude, the skill of seeing all the good that is actually there. You can save a marriage this way. All the good, the sacrifice, the kindness, you just cross it off the list because I don't like something about you. You don't get to do that. And if you can learn that skill, it'll change your life. And on the other side, God is not asking you to pretend you're living with perfection. He's not asking you to pretend you weren't hurt, disappointed, or, or in many ways damaged. He's asking you to see it for what it is. He wants you to see how bad it was. But to this, he wants to add a different skill. It's the skill of genuine and absolute forgiveness. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You could be destroying your life simply because you will not honor that defective person with mercy though you need it every day of your own life. And it's in this, these two very simple things that suddenly we find ourselves facing a great escape, an escape into a totally different life where God's blessing can overshadow you every hour of every day. Now, I know that there'll be some of you sitting here today and you're saying, Al, that's not that hard. I had good mum and dad. Yeah, they weren't perfect, but they were wonderful. Thanks for that. Not a big hill. I don't have a very big hill to climb. There'll be others sitting here today and you've got a, you've got a mountain in front of you. There'll be a mountain in front of you because you, you, you didn't have an easy time. You had some terrible things happen to you in your family of origin. Um, things that have damaged your heart. It may be that one or both of your parents was absent emotionally, relationally, physically. It may be that one or both of your parents was neglectful that you were neglected in ways that deeply damaged the way you feel and see your own value. It's possible that you were raised in a home with a very flawed parent. I have a wife who was raised in a flawed environment. Her mother died when she was eight. Her father became a functioning alcoholic. He then married again and brought in a woman with mental health issues. I have a wife who grew up in fear and at times in violence. And I see the fingerprints of that distress in her life to this very day. I see it. I live with a woman who grew up in a flawed environment. And every now and then you'll bump into someone who was raised in an abusive or even an evil household. What are you going to say to them, Al? Huh? Huh? What are you going to say to them? Exactly the same thing. Things don't change. Same principles. And I acknowledge that you have a higher hill to climb than I do. But you need to understand the importance of climbing it. And sometimes you need help. Sometimes you need counselors to go with you. Sometimes you need a friend who's gone that journey before to go that journey with you. But you've got to climb that hill. You have got to learn to let the good stuff be as good as it is. And add to it gratitude. You've got to let the bad stuff be as bad as it was and learn the skill of absolute, total forgiveness. Because if you don't, it'll haunt you for the rest of your life. Um, it's a really interesting thing. Um, 
Dallas Willard said these words in discipling people. He said, if you do not deeply appreciate the weight of the fact that your parents gave you the gift of life, you say, well, I'll thank you, but I grew up in an abusive family. My dad sexually abused me. It damaged my life. And I get that. I've never been through it, but I get it. I understand that. Big, you've got a big mountain in front of you. But was nothing good happening there? No, not a thing. I can't think of one good thing. Well, I can tell you one good thing. You are alive. And because you are alive, you may have already survived the worst that life can throw at you. And all that, re that remains in front of you is a light or a road that gets better and better all the way to eternal life. Because you are alive, you can be a recipient of the mercies of God and an entirely graced eternal future because you're alive and you owe that to your mum and dad. And this is what Dallas Willard said, if you do not deeply appreciate the weight of the fact that they gave you life, you are condemned to despising yourself for you are the life they created. If you never press through your disrespect or your rejection of your parents and who they are, there will be a similar disrespect for yourself. A long and healthy existence rooted deep in the soul requires that at some level we be grateful to God for who they are and not necessarily for all the things that they have done. And if that's you today, don't leave. Before you've come and stood and said, God help me, I was hurt, I was wounded, I was abused, I was on the receiving end of evil, but I do not want to carry this for the rest of my life. I want to learn the skill of total forgiveness. And I want to learn the skill of the gratitude for the one thing that they did give me. And that is a life that can you, you can now bless. Don't leave before you've, you have no idea what that could do for your future. To embrace those two skills today. Now I want to say that along with probably most people in this auditorium today, I didn't have such a big hill to climb. My mum was nearly perfect. Mums are often like that. Mums of girls are made out of sugar and spice and all things nice. And if, there, if I was to look back and say, what was the imperfection in your mum? About the only thing I wish was different about my mum was that my mum was a very reserved person and there were times I wished she had been freer to talk about sexual issues, relationship issues, but she was very private and so there was some stuff that we, we just never, we never communicated about and I'm sure she could have been really helpful but because she was such a private person in some areas she just was not very communicative but I want to tell you she was an amazing and wonderful just a wonderful mother my dad on the other hand I can I'm easy I can, it's easier for me to pick out the issues that were not good for me and the two largest issues would be go something like this don't play the piano that's all because if you play the piano I can't think straight <laughs> uh, I'm nearly finished but I'm not quite My dad um, was a survivor of the Second World War, and I think it damaged his life. And there were times when, if I let my dad down, he would go totally silent. He wouldn't say anything. I knew that I'd disappointed him, but it, we, never, he, we never talked it through. We never processed it. And the first time I ever saw it was when I was four years of age. And the fact that I can tell you about it is the fact that it marked my heart. We made a kite together. It was wonderful. I remember the day, the sun was shining, we built a kite, we went out and flew it in the park and it was fun. Dad was a teacher, he went off to school, I'm four years old, I don't go to school. So I've got a boring day, I'm going to have some fun. I, I took the kite and I went off to the park to fly the kite. If my mum had known I was doing that, crossing Belmore Road at the age of four with a kite, she would have freaked out. 
but I'm over in the park. I can still picture the day in my mind. The black sky is scudding across the, 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 the sky and the, the wind is howling in the gum trees. Anyone would know this is not a day to fly a kite. But I tried to fly it and I wrecked it. And when Dad came home, he saw the wrecked kite and a sad look came over his face. He never said a word. We never fixed the kite. We never flew it again. It was like he took a backward step. And I felt it. And that was a pattern that was then repeated over and over again throughout my life. My dad was not, he didn't coach well when he was disappointed. Um, the flip side was that he might blow up in your face. And the worst belting I ever got from my father was when I was 14 years old and I bought a bicycle tube with my own money. When dad heard that I had bought a new bicycle tube instead of fi fixing a puncture in the old one, he tore a switch off a tree and gave me the worst thrashing of my life. And I, I thought, what the jimmy, Dad? I mean, it's a bicycle tube. I wasn't smoking the tube, Dad. <laughs> I bought it with my own money to do my paper out. You know, get a grip, mate. Who could ever have imagined you buy a bicycle tube, your dad belts the daylights out of you? But he did. And it caused me to draw back from him. I thought, you are a dangerous human being. Who could ever have figured out that that would be the consequences of me buying a bike tube with my own money? And as a result, I never really liked my dad that much. But if you'd come to me in my 30s and said, Al, what unforgiveness do you have to your parents? I would have said, that's nonsense. I don't have any unforgiveness. But one day I was counselling a woman in my office. And as she told me the story of her relationships, it sounded like nothing good ever happened in her family. And I said to her that day, sweetheart, have you ever done a treasure hunt on your dad? Because you've got to let the good stuff be as good as if. Have you ever done a treasure hunt? What were the good things that came to me? And as we talked, we began to write them down. And the more we discovered them, the more she, she remembered the good stuff. And by the time we'd finished, there was a bunch of stuff on that sheet. And she was seeing her family through totally different glasses. Changed her life and she left. And I was sitting there thinking, you know, I've never actually done that with my own dad. And that day I sat down and I did a treasure hunt on my father. And I began to reflect on the goodness that he brought into my life. My father loved my mother. One of the most profound impacts my father has left on my heart was that a man can love his wife all the days of his life. My father was a decent man. He taught me to pray. He taught us the Bible. My dad was an honest, upright I, would, I never once went to sleep hearing my parents fight. They never fought. He loved my mum. I never woke in the middle of the night scared because maybe their marriage was going to crack up. They couldn't pay their bills. Mum and dad were such good managers, such decent, honourable people. And the more I wrote down that afternoon, the more I fell in love with my father. And I sat down and wrote him a letter. I said, Dad, Father's Day's coming up and I've never said these things to you. But I want to tell you how much I appreciate you. And I began to put down all the things on my list. And the last thing I said was, Dad, whatever stability I have in my life, I owe that to you. And I sent him the letter. Funny thing is he never mentioned the letter to me. Um, Mum told me years later that the day he received that letter, he'd been in a bad mood for three days. And the moment he received the letter, he was just moved by it. And he wanted to go down the street and buy a picture frame and frame the letter and hang it up in the kitchen because I was on church letterhead paper. It's like a note from God. <laughs> 
And mum said, Roger, you can't put personal letters, hang them up in the kitchen. But he never, he never came and said one word to me. It didn't matter an ounce. Because from that day, I loved my father. I let the good stuff be as good as it really was, and I loved him. And every time I would meet my dad after that, I'd wrap my arms around him and I'd kiss him right in the face. He never knew what to do with that. <laughs> my dad was like a little telephone pole. Have you ever done a treasure hunt? Got someone in your life, find them not easy to love or appreciate? Have you ever done a treasure hunt? What's the good that's come into your life through that person's life? Let it be as good as it really is. Stop crossing the stuff off. You let it be as good as it is and you'll discover a well, a fountain of gratitude because the Holy Spirit's right in there to teach you how to worship and teach you how to express gratitude. One other thing that really helped is my wife said to me one day, she said, Al, you need to take your dad back home one day and before he dies and get him to tell you all his family stories. And so I went back home one day, back to the old gold mining town of Malden in Victoria, where my dad was born and raised. And for a whole day, we trucked around and dad told me stories. He showed me the little school where he went to school and told me stories about how when he was a kid, he put um, sheep droppings in a brown paper bag, took them to school and told everybody they were aniseed balls. <laughs> <coughs> I started to understand some of my own sinful ways that day. Um, <laughs> he showed me a dam where a friend of his had drowned when he was a teenager. And at last I understood all the times my dad would freak out when we, if he thought we were going down the river. And he'd, never, he'd go crazy. I said, what's your problem, mate? I can he, he'd lost a friend through drowning and didn't want to lose a son. He showed me the little white house where his mother raised nine children virtually as a single parent. He told, showed me where he used to herd cows and how when he was herding cows, he'd get paid a halfpenny a month and he'd take the halfpenny home and hand it over to his mum. And all the kids did that. They pooled their money to help the family get through. And that was the day I understood that belting I got over the bicycle tube. See, I grew up in the 60s where a kid could have a bike, have a paper round, spend the money on himself. My dad grew up in a very different age, in a nine-child, single-parent home where every penny he earned went into mum's hand to help the family survive. And one day he saw his boy just uh, spend money on a new tube that he could have fixed. And I touched a fear button in my father's heart and he misbehaved. Now I could have done a number on my dad. I could have gone to my dad and said, Dad, do you realise today the Spirit of the Lord has unveiled to me the struggles of your soul? For I perceive that as a child, a spirit of poverty jumped on your heart. And out of the lack and poverty of your childhood, I as a poor innocent child grew up under your mistreatment. And there was a day when your sins and iniquities overflowed and you beat me to a pulp. But hear the word of the Lord, Dad. Today the Spirit of the Lord is flowing through my heart like a river and I forgive you all your sins and iniquities with which you have ever offended me. <laughs> a lot of nonsense. <laughs> all I had to do was see it. My dad had a background too. A background I don't fully understand because he, he wore different shoes. If I'd ever had to walk a mile in my dad's shoes, I wonder who I would be. All I could do is realize that my dad had a very different upbringing and all I did was just loved him more. I said, I get it. I, you know, I get it. 
One last thing and we're done. We often don't understand that not everybody is wired the same. And you can only be who you are. You can't be someone else. My church hated me when I first arrived because I wasn't Kenneth Copeland. (laughs) Well, my name's Al and I'll never be Kenneth Copeland, so get over it or go find a church where you can be miserable somewhere else. (laughs) We built a great church even though I wasn't Kenneth Copeland. My brother said to me, Al, I was talking to Dad the other day about the Second World War. We were sitting in the kitchen talking. We got to the point where he told me about how one of his friends had got shot in the head. And when he got to that point in the story, he just stopped talking. And after a while, I realized he wasn't going to say anymore, so I got up and I left the room. I came back through the room 20 minutes later, and Dad was sitting in exactly the same place. He had not moved. He was as silent as a mouse, and tears were just streaming down his face. And I got a kind of an insight into my father's wiring. See, that's how my dad dealt with pain. He dealt with it on the inside. And that's why he went silent over the kite. Now, it didn't help me as a kid. I wished he'd been different, but he wasn't. He was who he was. Now, I could hate him for not being someone else. But I'm going to love him for for being who he was. Because in many of those silent moments, he dealt with issues of faith and behavior. And as a result, my dad was a decent man. And I grew up in the house of a wonderful father. So today, I want to say something to you. Here is the, one of the greatest skills you'll ever learn in your life to honor an imperfect person. If you could learn to do it with your mum and dad, it could spill over into your marriage. Because it may be that there's an imperfect person on the other side of that. Wouldn't be you, of course, but the other one could be. It may be there's an imperfect person at work. There may be an imperfect person in your street. There may be an imperfect person in your home group, maybe even leading your home group. What if you were to honor them? What if you were to let the good stuff be as good as it really is and let gratitude become the flavor of your soul? And what if you were to let the bad stuff be as bad as it is, but minister total forgiveness? For the word of the Lord to you today is this. If you will honor your father and your mother, it will be well with you. And you'll have a skill that you will carry into every relationship in your life. Father, in the name of Jesus, I lift my hands over this congregation. You alone know the hearts and lives and the stories of every person in this place today. I lift my hands. I pray that the word of the Lord will not be to them as a rod, but as life, life-giving bread. And that today they don't hear this commandment as a harsh command. It is a commandment drawing us to life. Take that life, I pray, and enrich this church. Enrich every marriage. Enrich every family relationship. And we'll be glad in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening this morning. Hey again, thanks so much for joining us on this podcast. Whether you are new and exploring faith or a follower of Jesus, there is a next step for you. There is always room to grow, more to be done, destiny to be pursued, and people to be reached. So what's your next step? To find out, head over to northwestchurch.com.au. And thanks again for listening.